Today's episode is brought to you by Away Travel. Quite simply, Away makes everything you need for a trip, well, away. They started with the perfect suitcase, then built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from personal experience. We want you to know that when it's safe to go, Away won't let you down. To give the whole world access to better travel standards, Away took the direct-to-consumer approach to lower prices, and the quality is guaranteed. Your Away suitcase will be with you for life. We are teaming up with Away to give you the best deal on premium luggage by going to podgo.co slash away. That's podgo.co slash away. Away travel, here to make your journey seamless. Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. This is your host, Emma Newberry. Today, I have my wonderful sister calling in from her school in Minnesota to discuss the history of internships, their evolution into what we understand them to be today, and the calculated necessity of them that society delivers to many young people. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. You just applied to an internship, right? Like you're thinking about stuff for this summer? Yeah, I applied to one and I was like, that's enough for now. (laughs) Is it a paid internship? Yes, it is. It's like $15.25 an hour, which is more than my current campus job. So, And it's at the historical? Yeah, the Minnesota Historical Society, which I've never been to, but. I'm sure you did not include that in your application. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite topic, internships. And I think no matter where you are on the socioeconomic spectrum, it's a stressful prospect. Mm -hmm. We wanted to talk about the history of internships, specifically how unpaid internships came to be part of the American understanding of the pull yourself up by your bootstraps story that is destined for certain people to fail. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wanted to start off by asking you, what it's been like. You're a junior in college, so you've had a couple years of this being maybe something that you've looked into, but obviously this year is different because of mm-hmm. So I wanted to just know like how you're doing, how your friends are doing, how Sam's doing. I mean, I only applied to one internship like in my life before this one, and it was when I was in like 10th grade. The museum one? Yeah. I've always been like terrified and felt inadequate and like pressured. So that made me not want to do it. But I know a lot of my friends, their parents are like, send out your resume and apply for internships. I'm just like, okay, why? Sam was going to do an internship that was a semester long at Disney in Florida, but that was canceled obviously because of COVID. Um, And then he just ceased applying. (laughs) (laughs) So he's just applying to like real jobs because internships are not helpful for him personally. My school is always like sending emails from the career center like, find an internship now. Like what you need to know, like five things to know about internships, like quick (laughs) tips and tricks for finding internships. And I'm like, why can't you help us find actual work? Like, you know, none of this is being paid. Well, the thing is, you've, so you've worked paying jobs. Yeah, it's like camp counselor and then like building monitor, which like I still don't really get what the purpose of that was. <laughs> and this year's a history research assistant, like the only one that I've found. 
is like kind of relevant to my studies. What we wanted to do today was just talk about slash learn together about how this came to be such an accepted part of like, this is the first building block on the way to your career because there's a lot of things wrong with like the internship process, particularly the unpaid internship process, which has gone through a couple of changes over the past like couple presidential administrations. The people who support it are saying like it's good for people to have opportunities to try out different things that they want to do without having to commit to the kind of structure that a paying full-time job would give you. And the people who are against unpaid internships are basically like, this is perpetuating racial, socioeconomic, gender, really all of the main identifier inequities. And also, why are we not compensating people for their time? And I sort of was just going along with it. Oh, yeah, like unpaid is just like a part of what you have to do. And then this year, I had a professor who brought up how it's insane that we've just accepted the fact that like young people have to work for no money and how that's like important and you like make connections and like that's what you basically get out of it just because we're young it can be like a stipend or literally anything it doesn't need to be per hour even but just why aren't you compensating young people i've run into this a lot just like in my own first couple years in the professional working world talking to my friends about how Our generations, like you and me and people younger than us, I think have stopped correlating age with inherent respect. Mm -hmm. That just because we're younger, we deserve less respect or less compensation. And like, Mm -hmm. obviously, if you're in an entry level position, you're not going to be paid as much as the CEO of a company. And I'm not, you know, debating the structure of that necessarily. And this is not to say that people who have internships don't work hard or that hardworking people don't deserve internships. It's really, I think, the entire concept of deserving it is not based on merit, as the system would like you to think, but instead on a pretty blatantly prejudicial system that exploits pre-existing inequities to ensure that only a certain number of people, quote, get to have these opportunities. Right. So I think it really goes, the conversation has to go beyond compensation for those opportunities, which I think absolutely should, should be. Yeah. But we also really have to question the structure of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. like, how did you get to this point? Yeah. Well, so that's the thing. Like every single article that I read in preparation for this episode was like, internships date back to the 11th century. Like, you know what else dates back to the 11th century? The Crusades. Literally. <laughs> like, 13-year-old girls marrying 50-year-old men dates back to, like, no. Exactly. <laughs> so many things date back to the past. This fact is not serving your point the way that you think. Yeah, it just shows it, like, hasn't really evolved. You still <laughs> won't pay, and it's right. still unfair. Our society has been the same forever, and it isn't working. Therefore, let's keep doing it. <laughs> yes. Like, the audacity of making that argument. I want to sort of chart how we came from the 11th century guilds and apprenticeships to this quote from a Time Magazine article in 2009 about the graduating class of 2009, which is obviously like around the time of the discussion. And the quote reads, internship programs have produced several successes. Bill Gates was once a congressional page. Oprah Winfrey worked at a CBS affiliate during her college years. And Brian Williams was a White House intern for the Jimmy Carter administration, just to name a few. 
Of course, Monica Lewinsky was a 22-year-old White House intern when she engaged in an intimate relationship with President Clinton, a scandal that still taints both offices. <laughs> no need to list her age and also implicate her and blame her solely for a sexual <laughs> encounter that defined all of the work that I'm sure she did very mm -hmm. well during her time there. Intern has come to mean a lot of different things in our society today, namely like hot young intern. Mm -hmm. Get me my coffee, intern. Like we don't know the intern's name, and you know there's just so much, so many connotations to it. It's so steeped in our culture that we need to talk about how we got to this point. So the 11th and the 12th centuries, apparently, since it dates back to that, um, started out with apprenticeships, which reminds me of like Mickey Mouse in Fantasia. Okay, now we're jumping to 1562. <laughs> judge myself <laughs> you're right like it is like mickey mouse in that people would sign on to work as an apprentice under a master of a given trade like let's say what is it called <laughs> what is that like the smith? yeah blacksmith yeah blacksmith under a blacksmith someone would like train to learn how to make weapons and stuff like that and they would usually live with mm -hmm. their master it was more, yeah, compensated in experience. And the goal of these apprenticeships was when you pick one, you're pretty much stuck with that for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, like, if you go at age, like, 10 to the blacksmiths, like, you're going to be a blacksmith. And, like, isn't your master expecting you to become them, like, when they die or whatever? So it's, like, sort of a guaranteed that's the path that you're on. It's training so that you can enter into a guild, mm -hmm. like a union, not training so that you might be able to get an entry-level job in the same right field. it's like a yeah you're right it's a guaranteed pretty much guaranteed even though like I don't know what was up with the plague back then <laughs> uh, pretty guaranteed trajectory to having your pretty being pretty established in the business that you choose now you can jump to <laughs> century Next significant date is 1562. The Statute of Artificers, passed by Queen Elizabeth I, federalized the functions of guilds by allowing the state to impose maximum wages and officially require a certain degree of training, which is the apprenticeship. It, it basically took away the specific determinations that um, masters could make. Like, I'm going to pay you this much, or you have to train for this long. And it made the crown in charge of sort of making sure that people stayed in their positions for a certain amount of time. Also, because a lot of people were dying off because of mm -hmm. disease and stuff. So it, it was it was like a sanctioning of the process by the crown. Then in the late 1800s and early 1900s, we have the Industrial Revolution. Standardization of... Steam, baby. <laughs> what? Steam. Um, a lot of steam. Wait, <laughs> Basically, everything turning like gray and black, and whatever that story is about the mods like having to change colors to match the black trees. Wait, what? They like adapted to blend into like the trees that were now like black because of the industrial revolution, because of like the steam and like soot, <laughs> yeah, like the ash or whatever. Oh my god! And so they like adapted to do that. That's what they're like supposed to do. They're supposed to like camouflage. Wow. So 1899. The cooperative system of education is proposed at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. 
and the founder of the co-op education is Howard Schneider. Yeah, co-op is like school plus internship is how we would think of it today. Like part Mm -hmm. of your education comes from concrete experience and part of it comes from being in the classroom. So he was super into the idea, specifically for engineers at Lehigh, but Mm -hmm. it expanded from there. Like just the idea that it's really important it should be part of education to have a working knowledge of how to actually implement the ideas that you discuss. Very practical. Mm-hmm. 1903, Herman Schneider arrives at University of Cincinnati from Lehigh to serve as professor of civil engineering. Once he got to the University of Cincinnati, three years later, he, he was the dean of the College of Engineering and Applied Science, and he founded the co-op there. Mm -hmm. That was the first academic internship in the United States at the University of Cincinnati in the accounting department in 1906. The wages at that time were eight to ten cents an hour. But like it probably is equivalent to like, yeah, that's about three dollars max in today's money. 1937, the National Apprenticeship Act passed. It established the Bureau of Apprenticeship and training in the U.S. Department of Labor and 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act. I see that as like the American version of what they did in 1562, (laughs) which is basically just making it, putting laws on the books to regulate apprenticeship and training, which was basically like the nascent internship program. I feel like it's important to see how things slowly become socially acceptable and like in America we can see it through like it makes it to the university level which is also already like a pretty rarefied space in terms of who gets to be Mm -hmm. there and then it's sanctioned within specific departments and then the government sanctions it sort of as a method like it's it's top down I guess Mm -hmm. like 1906 is probably just white Christian men getting Mm -hmm. There are a couple important years of like lawsuits slash Supreme Court rulings on interns versus paid employees. In 1947, they didn't really have any official language on the difference between unpaid interns and paid employees yet, but the Supreme Court heard a case, Walling versus Portland's Terminal Company, which was railroad workers. Yeah. So they ruled that unpaid trainees should not be treated as employees for purposes of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So The way that they determined this was that railroad trainees were not employees because they did not displace any regular employees. Their work did not expedite the employer's business. They did not expect to receive any compensation and they would not necessarily be hired after completing training. I think it's a really interesting distinction because it's like they weren't expecting to receive compensation because of the way things were set up. But the reason that this case was heard is because they wanted compensation. Hmm. So using the standard that they weren't expecting compensation when they took the job as a means of denying them compensation is pretty, yeah. So that was like a pretty big deal. And then there's another case that we'll talk about in a little bit. But it was, there was a huge jump in the late 20th century. In the 1980s, if you asked a random college grad, only 3% of them would tell you that they completed an internship before graduating. And then by 1989, upwards of 80% of college seniors had completed at least one internship by the time they graduated. Wild. Yeah. And now, a days, an article in the American Prospect 
in 2019, which weirdly is like two years ago now, but I count that as still pretty relevant. But nowadays, quote, between 500,000 and 1 million Americans intern for free every year, including as many as half of all graduating college seniors. Studies show that internship experience enhances marketability in the job search, with 60% of employers expressing preference for hiring applicants with internships on their resume, according to one survey. Some 90% of employers say students should have one or two internships before they graduate. What this doesn't mention is that in order to get an internship, apparently you need like three years of experience. That is always the kicker. Yeah. So that makes zero sense to me. I know the issue of the standards and expectations for qualifications for an internship is ridiculous because it's not as if there is some external force imposing these requirements. It's more like companies create the standard that they then deem necessary. So it's a completely closed circuit system in which it's at their discretion to determine what the qualifications are and therefore who's qualified for these opportunities. The Obama administration really tried to make it almost impossible to legally have an unpaid intern. The Department of Labor under Obama established a six-part test. So the misclassification of employees who were hired as interns, basically they're trying to make it impossible for you to hire someone who does the work of an employee but is treated Mm -hmm. as an intern. So a lot of private employers stopped offering internships around like 2009-10 because they basically made it like impossible to do it. Nancy Lepink, who worked in the Labor Department under Obama, said, if you're a for-profit employer or you want to pursue an internship with a for-profit employer, there aren't going to be many circumstances where you can have an internship and not be paid and still be in compliance with the law. I think that that was like a pretty good effort. The six factors in the what they call the Obama test. One, whether the internship was similar to training that would be offered in an educational environment. Two, whether the internship experience was for the benefit of the intern. Important. Three, that the intern did not displace a regular employee but worked under close supervision of existing staff. Four, that the employer provided the training derived no immediate advantage from the activities of the intern and on occasion its operations were actually impeded. Five, that the intern was not necessarily entitled to a permanent position at the conclusion of the internship. And six, that both the employer and the intern understood that the intern was not entitled to wages for time spent in the internship. Mm -hmm. Essentially, if they're doing something for you, you need to pay them, Mm -hmm. I think is the easiest way to distill that. And then perhaps classically... Under Trump, they got rid of this test, decided to establish the IRAP, which is the Industry Recognized Apprenticeship Program, I guess the Trump version of the normally instituted National Advisory Committee on Apprenticeship. So it's giving the power back to the industry and putting it at their discretion, sort of how they deal with interns. And I think, honestly, the country was sort of heading in that direction before Trump was elected as well, because... In 2015, the other big case was GLAT versus Fox Searchlight Pictures. The case started in 2010 in the district court in New York, and then that decision was ultimately overturned on appeal in 2015. But I'll get to that. A bunch of interns in the movie Black Swan, which I think is hilarious because Black Swan is all about being overworked to the point of mm-hmm. like 
complete mental breakdown. A bunch of interns sued because they claimed that after completing their internship, they realized that they really should have been compensated for their time. And the court basically rehauled the six-part test that Obama came up with and made it a seven-part test that was a lot looser in definition and essentially ruled that, no, you didn't technically count as employees. You knew what you were signing up for. Unpaid internships do provide value to both the intern and to the construction of society as a whole. And there was a Wall Street Journal op-ed in 2010 when the case first was being heard that said, this isn't exploiting young people. It's letting young people exploit an opportunity. Edwin Koch, or Koch, Director of Research, Public Policy, and Legislative Affairs for the National Association of Colleges and Employers, said of the ruling, that's probably going to be a serious consideration for first-generation students, students that come from backgrounds that are not so well off. So to that extent, it could have some effect, but I don't know that it'll have a dramatic impact. What a cock thing to say. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I understand the the argument like, oh, you knew what you were signing up for because, I mean, it's like you like sign. It's like you knew what you were signing up for. <laughs> yes. You knew what you were like. You probably saw, like actually signed some paper, being like, like agreeing to it. Yeah, but you don't know. I think when you're working, like what you're gonna end up having to do for someone. True. Yeah, I think I see both sides of that specific point. Yeah, I was paid like six dollars an hour for like the camp counselor thing, and I basically had to like, I was like put in charge of looking after this. Particular thing, he, like, they didn't feel like dealing with just because he had behavioral differences. I was fine with it, but it's like, yeah, he liked you. You're paying me six dollars an hour, but it's just it's literally this isn't exploiting young people. It's letting young people exploit an opportunity. <laughs> it's so deeply ingrained in the highest level, mm-hmm. like, and of course, if it were really us exploiting the opportunity, then the changes that people want to this kind of setup, right? that are coming from our level would be implemented. But the power imbalance is such that there's no, there's absolutely no way that we can exploit an employer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, there's different levels of this. Like you and I are definitely, we're both white women from an upper middle class family. So like it goes even further Mm -hmm. in this like arbitrary hierarchy. This is from a 2015 Atlantic article after the ruling came. As Brookings senior research assistant Joanna Venator writes, one of the obstacles to greater intergenerational mobility is the, quote, glass floor that keeps less talented children born to affluent parents at the top of the income ladder. One way in which affluent parents protect their children from falling is by using personal or professional connections to arrange job or internship opportunities. Mm-hmm. But there are less visible forms of protection, such as paying the summer living costs that make an unpaid internship feasible. This is not meritocracy. It is opportunity hoarding. Right. Right. I thought that was really well put. Yeah. Anytime that your justification for something is, oh, well, it's been happening since the 11th century. First of all, none of the inequities and discriminations are going to go away if you're mm-hmm. relying on that system. And also, like, you're inherently condoning them by hearkening back to the good old days. Right. And... I know that my school and probably other schools, and I think there's just like other programs that students and young people, but I think mainly students, can apply for if like they're going to do an unpaid internship, you can like, 
apply for like a grant obviously there's not like one for everyone it's like very limited who gets those so like I get that like some people are trying but like that shouldn't be necessary because it should just be paid and also the other thing is I think it's really important to talk about the statistics around ethnicity race and gender specifically um today NACE which is the the organization that Edwin Koch works for. So they conduct studies pretty often and they conducted one in 2019. They basically interviewed college seniors that year, which was my graduating year, about their plans for jobs, internships, etc. Responses from 3,952 graduating seniors were analyzed from February to May of 2019. The racial breakdown of the study is that white students made up 71% of respondents Black students made up 6.6% of respondents. Hispanic American students made up 10%. Asian American students made up 4.8%. Multiracial students made up 4.2%. First generation students made up 2.6%. Native American students made up 0.5%. And Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander students made up 0.1% of the total. So because the demographics are so skewed it does make it sort of difficult to understand the disparities but it's still pretty evident that even with such a large sample population of white students they are disproportionately more likely to be getting internship opportunities and when they do get them they're more likely to be paid so white students made up 71 percent of all respondents and they also made up 71 percent of people with unpaid internships and they made up 74% of people who had paid internships. And to contrast that with the 6.6% of Black students, they make up 7.3% of unpaid and 6% of paid. There are some cases, like with the Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander identifying students, where there were only 0.1% in the sample, but that 0.1% all had paid internships, and none of them They either had a paid internship or no internship, so they didn't receive any unpaid work. And the same goes for first-generation students. They're more likely to have either no internship or a paid internship. So the conclusion is essentially that there was an overwhelming number of white students who had paid internships more so than unpaid. Multiracial Americans were more likely to be unpaid interns or not to have had an internship at all, with Hispanic American students most likely to never have had an internship opportunity. Hmm. So paid interns were most likely to be white males who come from a family with at least one parent with a bachelor's degree, which hmm. surprise, surprise, when you were like, yeah, way back in 1906, it was only white educated college education, and like, it still is that. In the same study, they said that students with paid internship opportunities are more likely to have, one, a higher starting salary, two, more job offers, and three, a shorter job search. So, for example, with hiring, at the time the survey was conducted, 13% of people who were employed had never had an internship, 14.8% of people who were employed had unpaid internships, and 40% of students who had had a paid internship were employed. Mm-hmm. So, like, obviously, jobs prefer people with experience, and I get that because, yes, experience can be helpful, but then you're, like, playing into the whole system because you know that m- more people who have the experience are going to be 
like more privileged people. I did read a lot of good articles about like ways to combat um, racial inequity in internships in this country. And I think one of the things that I took away from that was there's a lot of proposed fixes sort of on the, the symptom side of the problem. So like making sure that there are more paid internships would narrow the wage gap ultimately or the income gap ultimately. But the Economic Policy Institute had a report that said that the racial wealth gap is the largest Mm -hmm. wage or income gap. So like when we were talking about the glass floor, wealth as in accumulated wealth intergenerationally among families, particularly black families in America, is so significantly less than that of white families that it's just they're not set up to be able to pay for housing or pay for those sort of like mm-hmm. insulating factors in the way that white parents and more affluent families can. If there's a wealth gap, then fixing generation-specific income and wage gaps is not going to do enough. Right. I also don't think employers and companies having like quotas about like who to hire, like what I don't think that's like the solution at all either. I do think it should be based on who's like actually qualified to do it. And that means it should be less about like who you know and like what connections you have, which is gonna be more likely the like white affluent students. But like how are you gonna like tell people like I feel like the whole job force is like who you know and like connections. Like LinkedIn is all about like your network and it's just like how are you gonna dismantle that like I don't know I would have said had I not read this article I would have said like oh well if you count on specific people within an industry to make an effort then that can help dismantle it even if they're working within a largely more prejudicial system but Mm -hmm. the organization pay our interns published a report this week um, about the 116th congress which was Trump's last two years of his presidency. And it was called Who Congress Pays Analysis of Lawmakers' Use of Intern Allowances. The report found that white Congress members are three times more likely to hire a white intern as members of color. White students made up 76% of paid congressional interns, despite only representing 52% of college students. While members of color make up 24% of Congress, but employ 33.5% of interns of color. Even then, Black and Latino students were underrepresented. The report also shows that nearly 50% of paid interns attend or attended private universities, which is double the number of undergraduate students who attended private universities national. It feels so irrevocably about who you know, and you have to be in the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. to get so much of this stuff. Like you have to be, like if you're an affluent white student who goes to a public university, you're less likely to be hired. So they're even within the more privileged slots, which is not really the point I want to make overall. Like even privileged people have it hard, but like it's not, it doesn't serve anybody the way it's set up right now. Yeah, it does not. I think LinkedIn is one of the most low-key toxic social Mm -hmm. forms and people don't see it as that because it's like corporate. And so it's not perpetuating like, you know, body dysmorphia, like a lot of the issues that you see come up on Instagram that people talk about, but like it is in a way promoting this idea of like the ideal worker. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I hope that my resume doesn't say totally everything about me. Of course it doesn't. It's a piece of paper. 
the biggest irony to me, and like this is, you know, speaking from a very privileged standpoint, but is I have to look a certain way. And then when I get into the room for the interview, all they want to know is stuff that's not on my resume. Right. And really, quote unquote, get to know you, which I totally get because you want to work with someone that you get along with. The criteria is so arbitrary and shifting. I did read this one article about this this fashion student at Parsons, and she eventually made her own fashion company. She is a black student, and she was hired by Betsy Johnson as an intern because she, literally she wrote this, I happened to run into her on the street. Oh my god, yeah. And like, you know, I shot my shot, and I got it. And the fact that this whole system is fed through the narrative of meritocracy is really frustrating because it, it makes you feel like if you didn't get it, you just didn't work hard enough. Mm-hmm. Like even my campus job, like the person who was hiring me, I had had a class with her as well. Like I was in like a creative writing class because she's like allowed to take one class a semester, I think. So she like told me, she was like, I know you already. And like, so I don't really need to interview you. And like, I feel comfortable like, because I know who you are. And there aren't that many history majors in the first place. But I still felt like, I was like, well, I'm kind of glad that, like, I was in a class with her because clearly that affected it. What's interesting to me, and I've, I'm in the process of applying to a job right now where I've gotten to the stage of having references. And, like, I was just thinking about, like, okay, you know, who should I use as a reference? And it's like, who... Who not only has seen me work and how I work, but who has also seen me like in my most human capacity mm-hmm. and can attest to mm-hmm. how I am as a person, like if that's a real thing. And it's just from day one, like if you think about all of the inequities in our education system in this country, like there are so many fewer opportunities to quote unquote make an impression if you're not of a certain race, um, socioeconomic status, gender, usually. And it's not about what kind of impression you make. It's like literally there are amazing, hardworking people who don't even get into the room. Right. And it's really not right. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I mean, I'm sure that your professor was right. Like she knows you and if she knew you and didn't like you, then you wouldn't get it. So it's not that there was nothing about you that did it, but it's a certain factors that allow you to establish a relationship like that that not everyone is afforded, I don't think. Yeah. And that's the thing, like what do you do? So like for you, I completely understand the frustration of being like, I don't want to do an internship as a process. It's stupid. And also like right now, it doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. But like also then do you just like opt out of that system? Because then ultimately, if that system is not dismantled, yeah, you could argue that all you're doing is hurting yourself. And like, I just don't know what to do. Why do you have to know so early mm-hmm. what you do it doesn't make any sense and I mean there are things to be said I feel like about um like if you think about how the college system is set up in parts of Europe or like in Japan like you just know at almost as early as like high school what you're going to do and you just go into that field Mm -hmm. and then you commit to it and that's just what it is and like everybody does that I mean to me that feels soul crushing on some levels but also it's like I don't know in this society I feel like the narrative is like everyone deserves a chance to figure out what they want to do and like what they'll succeed in. But it's that narrative laid on top of like a series of traps so that only certain people actually get to try that out. And then people turn around and tell you like it's just because you didn't try hard enough. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, do you want to be a worker drone or do you want to be have the chance at the American dream, you know, quote unquote, with like a categorical statistical chance of failing based on what family you were born into? Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. Special thanks to Caroline Newberry for her work on this episode, as well as Kenny Noel for music and Dan Ballou for the ads. Have you got something to say? If you do, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at the All Alone Pod or email us at theallalonepod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.